0: This is the Definitely Uncertain Podcast, brought to you by Goldrock Capital. Each week, we look at how high net worth families can improve their lives, decisions, and investments in a deeply uncertain world. We always aim to provide practical information, even if we can't offer specific investment advice. Welcome again to Definitely Uncertain, the Goldrock Podcast. And today, we have the privilege privilege of having with us uh, Joanna Landau. Joanna Landau is a, an entrepreneur who has been involved in multiple uh, social startups and, and and various NGOs, which we're obviously we're going to talk about uh, a little bit more. Uh, um, like myself, she has roots in the uh, United Kingdom, Britain. Um, and so we probably share things like tea and, and various other important, uh, very important matters. But today we're going to focus um, a little bit on uh, the work that uh, Joanna's been doing over many years with uh, Vibe and uh, really branding Israel and taking the message of Israel out to an international audience. Um, And also, of course, uh, the fact that uh, Joanna has chosen to go down the route of philanthropy rather than working in the private sector, which she absolutely could do with her uh, legal qualifications and so forth. Talented as, uh, as Joanna is. And we'll talk a little bit about that too. So let's get straight into it. First of all, welcome, Joanna, onto the uh, podcast. Hello, thank you for having me. And um, I thought maybe the place that we could start from and then, and then sort of gradually work through is talk a little bit about your decision to uh, dedicate yourself to the world of not-for-profits and, and sort of Make that your uh, focus in life? Where does that come from? Why have you chosen that? You clearly could have done other things. So uh, maybe we can start from there.
1: Sure. Um, so I come from a um, fourth generation uh, philanthropic family. So it's been, it was part of my upbringing. Um, it was always around, but I did not choose to go there right from the beginning. Uh, my first choice, uh, you know, I, got, uh, I went to study law at Cambridge and I came back to Israel and became a lawyer um i I likely uh, would have stayed in the field except that I did not feel that uh, I wanted to do law so much as I wanted to do the business mm-hmm. so then I went into business um all the while of course, I was involved in various philanthropic efforts on you know and initiatives that the family was doing, but it was never the focal point. Um, But I always did know that uh, eventually I would have to get much more involved. And I was, you know, the next in line. So I was clearly going to have to be involved in my family foundation and so on. But my life was was going ahead as planned. Uh, I got married. I had three kids. And um, when my youngest was a year and a half and my oldest was five, which was about um, 13, 14 years ago, I literally, I was 35, I woke up in the morning, and I basically just said, "I it can't be that uh, I had a business at the time, and my business was fine. It was, it was, I wanted to import the idea of digital photo books to Israel at a time mm-hmm. when it didn't exist. Mm-hmm. I was ordering photo books of my children and family and so on from the United States, and the delivery cost more than the actual book. Mm-hmm. And so I thought we really should have it in Israel, and I had a company called Say Cheese, and I was working on it fine. You know, it was all good. I was happily married. I had three kids. Everything was great, except that I didn't feel that I was really having a meaningful impact on my life, uh, the life around me. And and of course, seeing that as part of my life, I felt that I wanted to get involved in it. And I woke up in the morning and I just sort of said, I want to do more. And uh, I actually chose to go through a little bit of coaching and figure out uh, the sentence that, that I said to myself was, I know I'm a passionate person, but I don't know what I'm passionate about. I know I have the skill sets. I know I have the capabilities. And I'm very fortunate to have the means. But where Mm -hmm. am I going to, what am I going to do with it? So I did a process. It took me two months. I'm quite goal-oriented. And I understood that my greatest concern and that my need to sort of change was not in the for-profit world. It wasn't about making money. And it wasn't, um, at the time, there wasn't really... Um, you know, um, social companies. There wasn't social enterprises so much. It was, you're either in philanthropy or you're in business. And I discovered that I was more moved by making a, a difference socially than I was by, you know, striking a good deal. And then I found what was interesting to me and what my biggest concern was. And I decided to implement business thinking, but in a nonprofit world. That's how I got into it.
0: And when when you uh, sort of joined, uh, uh, when you sort of set that up or got it, got involved in that, you talk about bringing business thinking to not for profits. That was reasonably early, back uh, the end of the last century, the beginning of this. It was still about tea and sandwiches and meeting some friends and doing some good. And right. if something comes out of it, that'll be fine. Did you find right. that to be you were you were a slightly strange in the uh, a strange fish in the pond at that point?
1: I mean. You know, I was I was certainly strange fish in the pond where it comes to British-style philanthropy, which which can be strategic, but most of it is fairly based on a, a patriarch or a matriarch and what they wanted originally, and then the children just follow suit. Um, and, you know, all the skill sets and knowledge that you have when doing business somehow disappear, and then it all becomes very emotional, and you you seem to be making all sorts of decisions which, you know, if it were money that you were investing... Um, the question was, are you getting a return on on the investment that you wanted? And and that wasn't really a conversation that I was familiar with in the philanthropic world. Uh, Eventually, I came to learn that, for example, in the American philanthropic world, especially in the Jewish philanthropic world, it's extremely advanced. And I'm not sure that I would say that 10 years ago, there wasn't strategic sort of business style thinking in the nonprofit world. But certainly the world that I knew, Israel and, and England, I didn't see any application. What I saw was what my my family was doing, which was always great stuff and amazing things. Um, But I am naturally oriented to be data-driven. My mind, I mean, I could have remained a lawyer. I'm very rational in my thinking. Uh, I'm very goal-oriented, as I mentioned. So it just made sense for me to apply it in the nonprofit world. And I should also note that Being the sort of, you know, the next one in line, I didn't have this huge foundation that I was managing enormous amounts of money that I could, you know, really do uh, uh, whatever I wanted. I had a smaller amount of money and so I wanted more bang for my buck. And so I I felt that to do that, uh, I should really just borrow methodologies from the commercial world and implement them. It seemed to make sense to me at the time. I think with hindsight, um, it was the right way to go.
0: Right, it's, it, it is reasonably diriger these days, and almost across the board, in, uh, in I would say serious philanthropy. Um, yes. You mentioned the difference uh, between sort of the American style uh, philanthropy and foundations and, and the UK style of, of uh, foundations. I think also there's another aspect of that, which we talked about a little bit uh, prior to this, which is the sense or the, the mechanism that is more prevalent in the US about getting the next generation involved is different um, in, the, uh, in the US to the UK. I really like your uh, perspective on that. Uh, as a, you know, you, you've been now in, in, in the philanthropic world for for a reasonable amount of time. Yeah. So maybe share with us what you saw as two very different uh, modes. And if you can, uh, if you've got any views, which you think you know may work or what are the advantages of either?
1: Well, I find it fascinating to look uh, on the sidelines and, and at both of the sort of options. And again, the, the options that I'm looking at is a very strategic, like, you know, families gather like in the United States, they're big families. They're spread across a large area. Mm-hmm. Once a year, they gather together. They do a retreat. They have someone facilitating it. They bring the grandchildren, the grandchildren know that when they're 18 or 16 or 14, 13 or 25, They get on the board and the trust or whatever it is, and they're they're involved, right? And the grandparents sort of literally pass the torch on, which all sounds wonderful. But behind the scenes, of course, the grandparents really would like to dictate where it's going to go. And there's a huge amount of frustration internally, as with everything. Mm -hmm. Uh, Same with family businesses. You pretend to... Pass it on, but you really would like them to keep the same. I'm happy
0: to give you control, so long as you do what I want.
1: Exactly. So I wouldn't say that is better than what I was used to, where you know we there was there was a a vision. Um, In my case, there were you know my both my grandparents. One of them went in one direction, and the other went in the other direction in terms of areas where they wanted to influence. Uh, But they were both mutually supported. And, and it, very big visions, which then continued. Uh, and I'll, I'll give example for my own. My, my grandmother is, is her big vision and her big um, sense of, of, of wanting to make a real change is in the field of, of the environment and climate change and so on. She was very early on recognized. She's sort of the, the older version of Greta Thunberg. Uh,
0: there, but, there's an um, interesting mental, uh, <laughs> a mental vision for us, yes. <laughs>
1: um, but uh, it didn't move me. Honestly, Hi. I wasn't that particularly interested and I would have, I would do it because I wanted to continue my, um, my grandmother's still alive, but I'll do it because I want to continue my, my grandmother's legacy. Sure. Um, over time, of course, you develop your own desires and your own needs and what you want to do. So when it's very structured, then, um, I think it's, too much in one direction because it's all very organized, and maybe there's too much supervision, and there are too many pe- pe- people telling you what to do, kind of thing, and advisors, and so on. That the grandparents are sort of checking, um, and on the other hand, when there's there's sort of a rather more open book sort of policy, uh, then there's more room for conversation, room to develop your, your your areas of interest, and so on, but not enough guidance. Hmm. So I would say somewhere in the middle, um, and 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 absolutely hundred percent. I really do feel that um, a charitable investment is no different to a business investment. You know, if you wouldn't invest in this share today, then you should be selling it. Yep. Right? And so if you wouldn't invest in this NGO that you've supported for 40 years, because you see they're no longer really achieving the result, then you really should stop investing in it. But people don't. They stay loyal for years. And it's wonderful, except that it keeps lots of organizations going that are not really uh, impacting socially the way that they should. So I would say it's somewhere in the middle.
0: Yeah, you you, you raise an interesting point, which is obviously the the amount of capital available for, for philanthropy and social investing, if you will, is not an unlimited uh, resource. And if, we, if we're investing okay. it in inefficient or out-of-date uh, organizations, effectively we're restricting capital to go to a more innovative, <clears throat> excuse me, more innovative and and you know groundbreaking initiatives. Finding that that balance is obviously a little yeah, bit like it, in companies. It's 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 always a hard balance to uh, to find.
1: Yeah, it doesn't have to be innovative or groundbreaking compared to what you know has been done before. It could be the same thing exactly, so long as it's creating the impact. Right. That that's the problem. The problem is if you're still investing in something a charity that you've always loved and your grandparents loved or your parents loved or whatever it is, and you do too, but you see that times have changed and leadership has changed and the needs of the market of that charitable organization have changed, but the organization has not changed with it, then you you have to, to think about it. And, and I,
0: I have seen um, in some extreme uh, circumstances where multi-generational family foundations have been set up in a way where effectively, if Fred gave to Bob 40 years ago because they sat next together in or They, you know, he happened to meet him once at a meeting. The mandate is basically to continue that forever. Mm -hmm. And um, as you say, there is a certain sentiment around part of these things. And I think the ability to carry some level of those traditions and values forward are really important. But as you say, just because that's what was done in 1964, Probably doesn't necessarily mean it's relevant in 2024.
1: Yeah. And then you have the other side of the coin where you've got somebody who knows that, you know, uh, it's not necessarily uh, the way things are, won't always be. Uh, And then you've got uh, mainly, I think, American uh, charities, but maybe foundations, maybe they're in other places, but they do sunsetting in the sense that they just close down the foundation after a certain amount of years. Right. And and maybe that's a shame as well because maybe they're having an enormous amount of impact, but right. that's what the people decided and the trustees yeah. will go ahead and do it. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah.
0: There's a lot of, there are a lot of different models. Let's, let's, let's jump in a little bit to uh, Vibe, which is really where you've spent a a great deal of, I mean, all of your professional time over the last sort of decade or so. Before we get into where it's at right now, just tell us a little bit about why it was set up and what its main sort of mission statement uh, looks like.
1: So going back to what I said uh, at the beginning, I woke up in the morning and I said, you know, what really concerns me? What change do I want to see in the world? And I went through a whole list and eventually I got to the point where what I understood that concerns me the most is that the world's perception of the country that I live in, Israel, is vastly different to my experience of living in this country. So what the world was seeing in the media and so on and what the conversations were about Israel globally was the conflict and that it was the Jewish homeland. And what I was experiencing was, of course, we listen to the news every day at, at, on the hour and it's always around us. And yes, we, yes we're yes, we Jewish, but we also are people with, with some of us with mortgages and, you know, children who are sending their kids to school and we have businesses and we have culture and art and uh, everything. It's a country. It's not a conflict. And, and that gap seemed to me... Um, I couldn't find what explained the gap, because until that point, the understanding was the way to, to bridge the gap between perception and reality when it comes to Israel is to do advocacy work and to explain to people Israel's policies, and then they will understand and then they will change their mind. And to me, it wasn't an advocacy issue. I don't feel I have to support the government of another country in order to feel emotionally connected. To me, I I felt that the, the problem was that people just didn't know who we are, what we're about. There's so many amazing things, but these stories were not being told. And so I felt that there's this gap between perception and reality, and I thought "I I want to get over it. And I won't go into the whole detail of how I did it, but basically in the end, I established a nonprofit called Vibe Israel, and we are basically experts in branding and marketing Israel. So if you will, imagine... A supermarket, and you're walking into the supermarket. You're not there to buy toothpaste or, or bread or anything like that. You're there to buy your next vacation, a business that you want to invest in, where you're going to send your kids to to an MBA degree. Um, you know what cultural um, uh, um, sort of experience you'd like to have today. What you're going to watch on Netflix, so on and so forth. These are all products that companies are selling in the supermarket, which immediately explains to you that we live in a competitive world so no matter how much you think of one country how great they are or how bad they are you've always got alternatives to choose from and being uh, the field of, of branding and marketing a country is really about making that country the most appealing to the target audience very similar as we talked about philanthropy taking commercial methodologies about brands and companies and applying them to places So that's what we we do. This is who we are. We uh, focus on that field. And what we make sure is that the world knows these stories that are relevant to them about Israel. Mainly our focus has been in the last decade on the culture and the lifestyle of Israel because we noticed that a big part of the problem is this next generation, millennials, Gen Z. Um, They're far less interested in having a conversation about the conflict, but they're very interested in music, design, um, business, whatever it is that that tickles their fancy, Israel has a lot to offer. Mm -hmm. And so we focused on on doing that. Our our flagship project has been tours that we arrange for online influencers uh, in Israel, people who write about topics uh, like food and, and so on or education. And they've got a huge following online. And we bring them to Israel for a week and show them what Israel has to offer. And then they uh, write amazing uh, posts and, you know, blog articles about it or vlogs. Uh, and we've generated over a billion positive mentions of Israel online as a result. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah thank you. And in the That's last couple amazing. of years, we've really extended our connection and our work into the field of promoting Israel as a business partner, um, working with the Jewish community outside of Israel. How do you tell Israel's story to your next generation? Mm -hmm. So, so, you know, just because you're Jewish doesn't mean you're connected to Israel. And certainly the next generation is feeling that disconnect much more. So how do you tell Israel's story in a way that brings them back? And that's basically what we do.
0: So so talking about that for a second, um, we 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 have been branded very much as the sort of high tech, uh, the high tech nation, the startup nation. We talked about this um, um, earlier um, and. You had some insights about that. Um, and again, really very much sort of bringing more of a business uh, analysis to this than, than what would classically be involved in advocacy. Um, are we still the startup nation?
1: So we wanted to find that out. And, and oh, By the one way, one way-
0: I, I heard a new one this week. We're not startup nation, we're now vaccination. Yes, you heard it from me. Oh, there we go. Brilliant, <laughs> I have my sources, you see. Yeah,
1: but- <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely justified. Um, no, the, the again, as you said, if you want to define what a country's brand is about, it's very similar to defining what a company or a product brand is all about. So the first thing you have to do is is define your target market and then understand what the target market currently thinks of you. The sort of a situational analysis. So we did a situational analysis. Um, of the current brand of Israel when it comes to um, business, which is Startup Nation. As as far as we're concerned, that's what we're selling, the world. Um, And uh, we interviewed, uh, we did an online survey of 3,000 business decision makers around the world in 10 locations where Israel has got a lot of business uh, going on. We based that research off of internal research that we did amongst the leadership of the business community here in Israel and government representatives and a survey amongst economic attaches and, and diplomats and so on uh, based around the world. And we discovered that while we think Israel is the startup nation, and, and practically speaking, it certainly is, uh, there's a big difference between the facts and the perception. So the world maybe. Ten years ago, when the book Startup Nation came out, it made a huge splash. It was tremendously successful. It was a brilliant, brilliant, successful message, which has has a shelf life. And we're at the end of that shelf life in the sense that we still think that it's very impactful and that the world associates Israel with the term Startup Nation. We still think that we're the ones, you know, we're in this blue ocean, we're the best at technology, look at our numbers, look at Bloomberg, whatever, innovation index, so on, uh, and all the unicorns, but the world business people did not necessarily associate Israel as the leader in uh, technology or as the startup nation. So we asked, for example, what's your first association when we say the word Israel? And, you know, you'd expect to see the word startups. If we're the startup nation. And out of 3,000 people, 26 people said startups. So less than wow. 1%, which is mind boggling. And you ask yourself, how come? We also looked online for searches for the term startup nation and Israel. So we looked for the term startup nation in general. And then we looked for the term startup nation and Israel. And if you look for the term startup nation France or startup nation Romania, or Germany, or so on and so forth, you will find other countries are using this, better lack of a better word, slogan, startup nation, and it's become really generic, okay? And there's even an EU startup nation standard of how do you become an innovative ecosystem as a country in order to encourage EU countries to become more technologically advanced. And that means that we were tremendously successful but now we've given away our brand equity to other countries. And we are saying startup nation, but most people as a result, the business people are not necessarily associating that with Israel. They do; they are fully aware of Israeli technology. Business people, of course, respect Israel for the technology and so on. But again, it's been 10 years since the book came out. Mm-hmm. And in those 10 years, maybe due to the success of, of, of Israel, Many other countries have decided to invest in being better at technology. Small countries like Israel that are dependent on foreign direct investment, dependent on international trade, whether it's Finland, Estonia, South Korea, Singapore, all these different countries are now actually really good at technology as well. And so I take you back into the supermarket. On the shelf, we're not on our own anymore. And then it comes to, okay, who's better at marketing themselves? If you've got two technologies which are the same, yep. maybe ours is better. But am I as good at marketing? The answer that we found, and we, we are working with the, the sort of the McKinsey of the field of country branding that work with many other countries and cities yep. around the world, is that we do not. our marketing is not as good as other countries the because there's no strategic investment in it from a government level.
0: So this so is going to was, be something Vibe is, uh, is, is, is involved yep, with advocating yep. for?
1: Yes. As I mentioned before, we were more focused on the cultural and lifestyle aspect of Israel. Um, Now we are in conversation with the Ministry of Economy to discuss how we can work together on really uh, creating much more strategic efforts to brand and market Israel. And in a sense, it's really to emulate what happened 10 years ago with Startup Nation. The book was not just a book There was a book and then there was Dan Senor and Saul Singer, the authors, who actually were interviewed. Dan Senor was interviewed on CBS and on on many different platforms, giving sort of the cliff notes of the book. And then it was translated into many different languages. And you had all the Jewish diaspora who were giving the book around. And you had all the diplomats who were giving the book around, the Israeli diplomats. And that was a distribution platform which was suitable for 10 years ago. It grew organically tremendously successfully, but I would define it more like biz dev than mm-hmm. marketing, right? And what Israel needs is really to emulate that success in the third decade of, 20, uh, of the 20th, 20th, 21st century, yep. but in a way that recognizes that we now have social media we now have virtual experiences. We have a lot of ability. People are traveling much more globally than they did. There are so many things that can be done and we have an entire work plan to implement that.
0: All right, good luck with that. Um, one final thing I, I thought maybe we'd have a chat about, um, and a lot of organizations, uh, particularly in the not-for-profit world, have, have had to sort of cope with this. Uh, we're almost a year into the uh, to the sort of pandemic and, and COVID, et cetera. And many, many NGOs sort of woke up Uh, and realized that what they had done previously, their core business or their core activity, suddenly became irrelevant. And obviously, where Vibe was concerned, suddenly bringing uh, influence and so forth to Israel to see Israel physically, that was no longer going to be relevant, at least for a period of time. So, I'd like to talk just for a few minutes about the pivot. Um, What was the moment that you sort of realized, we're going to have to do something um, how quickly did you realize that it wasn't just going to be, uh, you know, a, a quick fix for a number of weeks, but something which is going to carry with us uh, for a number of time, and sort of bringing us to where we are right now? As you look forward, what do you think have, has sort of been developed out of that that could be of use to you even when the uh, the pandemic is uh, the pandemic is over?
1: Sure. So if we go back a year, right? So for for Israel, it kind of around February we understood that there's a problem. Um, uh, we had our, our last tour last year was in February. We usually do about eight tours a year. So we had a whole year planned. Everything was fine, going great. Um, and then of course we had to stop. So initially the first reaction, you know, it was the natural reaction. You first kind of freeze and then you kind of try and figure it out. And then you either sort of go down or go up. It's like, those are the choices. Um, so very initially we thought, okay, let's try and use what we have and all the influences that we have connections with and do a lot of virtual sort of experiences with them. We tried it out. We didn't feel it was very impactful. It didn't seem to work that well you're familiar with the world of influencers, they really need to experience something in order to be able to tell a great story. And just having conversations and talking heads was just not enough. Um, So right from the start, we were like, okay, we tried something out within the same sort of space that we're in, but that wasn't quite working. And then you've got an option to sort of adopt what I call the wait and see strategy, which is what a lot of of trip providers to Israel uh, have done. And so they're just waiting for it to sort of pass and then we go back. But uh, that's not the way I'm, I'm sort of made. That's not I, the Joanna
0: style, I don't think. It's
1: not, it's not something I'm capable of, apparently. And so we started to think differently. And of course, we were in lockdown. And so there wasn't really much we could do. During the period of lockdown, which was over Passover and so on, I felt that we had to do something. So we actually did a global campaign to uh, really share a message of hope about the pandemic where everybody was in the house, it was very uh, heart-wrenching, people were dying, it was terrible, and we really felt that we needed to do something. So we created a a, a short two-minute campaign called The Promise, where we took pieces of of, um, online content and and put them all together into a very uplifting um, piece, sort of a campaign, which reached over a million people globally. And what it was, was it was still in line with who we are and what we're about. So it was all about how countries are now being sort of, it's like people, you know, the Italians were singing on the balconies because they're Italian. You're not going to see Germans singing on the balconies. right? And you've got the NHS and and the British people were clapping very politely. You know, that's the whole... And Israel, you see the soldiers, and you know, helping. And and there was something about that that I felt was very meaningful. And we put Israel into the, the clips as well. And so it was a very subtle message. It really, uh, I, I think I needed it for my own personal ability to continue. And so we did that. And I had a lot of, uh, you know, energy spent on that. Meanwhile, we're thinking, what the hell do we do now? Because we can't do tours. First of all, so the first initial stage was let's put off the The amounts that we had saved for our tours to two months, maybe three months, and each time keep it in the kitty and move it forward, which meant that eventually you're going to run out of money for the your you know the, your everyday uh, you know costs. I had to let one of the people go. Slowly, we're sort of seeing what you know what are we capable of doing? And at some point, we were in, having this internal conversation. I think it was probably around June where I just felt that the lack of certainty of when this thing was gonna be over was so um, disconcerting that it wasn't giving us the ability to pivot. And so I just said, you know what? Let's just decide that we're not gonna do tours until the, the fall of 2021. I don't foresee tours coming back before the summer. We don't do tours in the summer because it's too hot and no one's around. Um, so the earliest we could do a all was September. Instead of having this sort of, let's push it off, let's push it off by a month or two. So in,
0: in a way, what you did was you took control of the uh, lack of certainty yeah. by saying, actually, we're just going to push it all the way out. And in a certain way, I mean, the, during that period, the thing which was particularly disconcerting was the fact not only was everything uncertain, but we weren't even sure what we were uncertain about. Right. So you had this kind of multiple layer of, I just, yeah. I'd have no you know, business tool or rationale to, to make any sorts of decisions. So one of the things it seems that you've done is to say, well, let's take the uncertainty about it and just say, we'll knock it straight out of the park. And I think we,
1: thought we yeah that
0: gave you certainty about, we're not going to do that.
1: Exactly. So it gave me some sense of control over completely, I mean, to this day, we don't really know what's going on, right, yep. but it gave me something, it opened up the space. At that point, we started thinking, okay, What are we good at? We're good at doing these trips to influencers and we're good at telling Israel's story. So we try to see, we understood that we can't work with one target market which is these influencers. We, We maintain a relationship with them but we can't resume the tours yet. So what other target markets are there? And we discovered the Jewish community outside of Israel that was really seeking virtual, really high quality virtual content that was not available because there are so many trips to Israel in such an organized manner. And so we thought, well, we know how to do trips. We'll just adapt them to the online sort of platform. And so that's what we did. We took our trips and we sort of thought of how do we do it in a way which is really quite unique. And we're developing an app and it's kind of gamification and and the whole load of things. And and at the time it started as as a temporary product to replace the fact that we can't bring people. But of course, right from the beginning, it was clear to me that this is a potential to become a brand new product offering by Vibe Israel, this time to the Jewish community who wants to engage their next generation. And we're now at that stage, we're doing a pilot with the School for Shlichim and we've got various foundations around the world who are working with us. So it definitely sort of just by by power of inertia and the, the, the refusal to accept that we just wait and let the world control it for us, we came up with something which, yes, we, couldn't, we can use it for six months and let it go and go back to our tours. But in fact, we've just created a whole new target market, which is the Jewish community. So that was one thing. Started working on that. Another thing that we did was that we started to work with the Jewish community. How do you tell the story? There's lots of Jewish professionals who are working with the next generation, all these online boring Zooms, whatever, what are you talking about when you talk about Israel? You can't talk about. Ben Gurion and, and, and Meir anymore. You have to do something fairly updated and you have to understand the next generation to do that. And we, we specialize in that. So now we work with, uh, you know, federations and so on to sort of help them tell the story onwards. And the third thing that happened was very much what I call a Corona product. I got a phone call from the president, the chairman of the uh, Export Institute back in March. And he said to me, I'm very concerned about Israel's exports Because of Corona, the whole world is coming to a stop. What are we going to do? And in the end, it's not, we we really need to get the big countries, the, the really large states that have large economies, they will become inward looking. They have large enough populations. And so they are not that bothered, or of course they're bothered, but it's not as bad for them. But small countries like us are really going to need to get better at our marketing because all the other small countries are going to get better at it. And they've got proper strategic programs in place in their governments for for several years now, and Israel doesn't. So he said to me, I think that Vibe can help business people sort of share the story better. And he connected me with with, uh, someone in the Ministry of Economy, and that's where it all started. And I felt... Going back to my so at the beginning of our conversation, that if we're going to do this, let's do it right. And I went back to our consultants and I said, you know, we want to look at how business people are viewing Israel and how we can bridge that gap from a business perspective. And that started in in June, July, um, and uh, and now we're at the end. And we it was a six month process, and and we're where we at now. So it's sort of um, it was fairly quick. Uh, uh, I would say between March. And June mm-hmm. but it had a lot to do with with uh I just don't I, I, I just can't sit around and wait for things to get better I'd rather sort of make them better and it created one of the key
0: one of the key moments I think for in the whole process that you described is the moment where you decide we're not going to be in this we'll just defer and then mm-hmm. keep deferring because actually what that does is it keeps you in the kind of paradigm of well really it's just the same but we're just going to have to uh, exactly. shifted along, the moment you took control of the, uh, of the timing and said, well, I don't know when this is going to end, and therefore, let's just, let's just put off indefinitely, yeah. suddenly you had the mind uh, really to look w- way beyond, I think, what you what you yeah. previously have been doing. That, that, that seems like it released a lot of it creative uh, and think, effort. And I
1: think also one more thing is that um, this isn't your standard average crisis. Okay. Mm. This isn't even 2008, nine. Okay. at The subprime. I mean, this is world war two, world war one style crisis. Yep. And thinking that you're going to go back to what it was just doesn't uh, actually mirror any reality that has ever happened. Yep. There is no normal. There will be a new normal. So if we're going into the unknown and we don't know what it is, so we can take some control by sort of those things that you mentioned. But we also have to understand that our thinking needs to, to be adapted and, and don't just think backwards. Think about what you've got right now. To me, it was important to save the staff. To sure. me, it was important to keep the people because mm-hmm. it ta- this is really an expertise to brand and market a place. And my staff has that expertise. And so I didn't want to lose them. Yeah. And so for me, keeping them was an important part of the ability of the organization to thrive and not just to survive so those those are aspects that also you know that people compared it initially to the subprime mortgage crisis right, and then it they are
0: meaningfully different
1: this isn't really a health issue this is an economic crisis of you know, proportions that we have never have never seen. Right. And, it and, and, think it, and,
0: and it, I think relevant also to your work, it's going to be um, socially very disruptive as well. Uh, people's yeah. habits, the way they actually do things. I think it's going to yeah. take a long time before, you know, we really do know what the future uh, looks like. It yeah. does sound like that in Vibe and and yourself, we've got some people who are thinking beyond and outside yeah. that box. So um, that's pretty exciting. And we've covered a tremendous uh, amount of stuff. It's been really interesting for me. I, uh, maybe as we sort of uh, move out of the crisis and we see some of those, you see how some of those things start to develop, it'd be great to have you back and, and sort of thank hear you. a little bit more. Okay. Um, and in the meantime, just to say thank you. And uh, thank you everybody who's been watching uh, today's um, podcast. And if you've got any questions, um, please do send them in and we'll see you again next time. Thank you.